Support for this podcast and the following message come from Humana. Employees are the heartbeat of your business. That's why Humana offers group dental, vision, life, and disability plans designed to protect them. Exceptional service, broad networks, and modern benefits. That's the power of human care. Hey, it's Sarah. I'm your host for this edition of the News Roundup. Just a quick heads up before we start the show. The news is rapidly changing, and things may have changed by the time you hear this episode. Stay up to date with the news by listening to your local NPR member station and visiting npr.org for all the latest. Thanks for listening, and enjoy the show. You're listening to the 1A Podcast. I'm NPR's Sarah McCammon, and it's time for another edition of the News Roundup. So let's get into it. The people who negotiated this, I wouldn't let them buy me a car. It's been a long week here in Washington. The Senate passed a bill late last night to raise the debt ceiling into 2025 and cut the deficit. All that's needed now is the presidential pen, but there's plenty of other important news from across the country to catch up on. And joining us for the hour to talk about it are Idris Kaloon, Washington Bureau Chief for The Economist, Washington Correspondent Joe Matthew from Bloomberg, and Eva McKend, National Politics Reporter at CNN. Welcome to all of you. For months, the country has been holding its collective breath over whether Congress could get its act together over the debt ceiling. And today we are all breathing just a little bit easier. Republican House Speaker Kevin McCarthy and President Joe Biden agreed to a deal over the holiday weekend. The bill passed the House on Wednesday and the Senate gave it the green light last night. The relief from some was palpable. Okay, good evening, everybody. Now, Democrats are feeling very good tonight. We've saved the country from the scourge of default, even though there were some on the other side who wanted default, wanted to lead us to default. That's Senate Majority Leader Democrat Chuck Schumer. Eva, I'll start with you. Even if this delay in raising the debt ceiling is a self-inflicted wound, who do you think has been hurt the most by it? Well, it's hard to say at this point. I think that politically both sides took a hit. Let's just tell our viewers what it does. So in the immediate sense, and you know, people were very worried about Social Security payments and their retirements, it does raise the debt ceiling and funds the government for the next two years. Some Republicans, they argue it doesn't cut enough federal spending. Some Democrats argue cuts to programs for needy Americans getting as little as $6 a day. Progressive Caucus Chair Pramila Jayapal notes Uh, in assistance shouldn't have even been part of the negotiation. But most domestic programs were left intact. So President Biden's signature achievements over the last few years are still in place. But President Biden did say from the outset that he wasn't going to negotiate on the debt ceiling. And it is, in fact, what he ultimately did. I mean, so how does he emerge from that, Eva? I mean, I think that the argument that Republicans make that he is too beholden to the right, uh, to the left, for instance, and that uh, this kind of, I think, throws a a wrinkle in that argument because ultimately he did return to, I think, how many people know Joe Biden, willing to work with uh, Republicans, willing to sort of take a centrist approach to this, ultimately in service to the country. I think that both sort of had both Biden and McCarthy ultimately had to sidestep crisis and 
they are claiming victory, but I'm not so sure that any either side politically out and out wins. I guess the country wins because we're not going to go into default. And it would have been nothing short of a crisis, as you say, Eva, had they not been able to reach a deal. Democrat Dick Durbin is the Senate Majority Whip. Uh, He spoke to reporters on Thursday as this was all unfolding. Default is not an option, and that means we have to pass this bill. I'm going to have to swallow hard on some parts of it. I'm sure other members say the same thing. But the responsible thing to do for America is to pass it. Now, Joe Matthew, we just heard Eva say that, uh, you know, initially President Biden said he wouldn't uh, negotiate on this. Ultimately, he did. Why didn't he and his team engage with Republicans earlier? Well, I think what was the motivation? The, 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 the first answer for that is they had no indication that Kevin McCarthy even had the votes uh, to carry any leverage into a negotiation. And the president didn't want to have his hand forced by this new speaker who was seen as being relatively weak with the Republican caucus in a super thin majority. So first they needed Kevin McCarthy to prove he could get a bill passed, and they did that. The Limit Save Grow Act, it was called, looked a lot different than what was voted on last night and that the president is signing today. And I would argue that they both technically strengthened their hands throughout this process. I mean, at one point here, it was worst case default, best case steep budget cuts uh, that would hamper any number of social programs, additional work requirements. That really turned around in the last week of negotiations. There are no steep budget cuts. And in fact, the changes made to work requirements for SNAP and other social programs uh, actually involve more people. They were expanded in terms of access. At the end of the day, more people are eligible. So I think Joe Biden, who, of course, is running for re-election, is in a position now to say, hey, look, I saved you from default and I saved you steep budget cuts. I actually made things better uh, for some of the most vulnerable Americans in the process here. And Kevin McCarthy can turn around and say, you know, I actually got the president to the table here. Uh, We held off his spending plans for the next two years, and I got a majority of the Republican caucus to vote for it. Both of them in that, if you look at it that way, beat expectations. But Idris, as we heard, you know, Eva allude to a moment ago, both sides of the aisle, senators on both sides of the aisle have their own concerns about this deal. What are those concerns? Yeah, that's exactly right. So on the Republican side, there were obviously some who thought that the deal didn't go far enough. Uh, At the last minute, there seemed to be a wrench thrown in the works when uh, a few suggested that they wanted a written statement saying that there would be the possibility of increased defense spending. A lot of them were worried that the – although this bill wouldn't cut defense spending, that it probably wouldn't raise it enough or enough to their liking. They did get that guarantee and ultimately agreed. Um, And uh, on the left, we saw I think the most irate senator – was Tim Kaine of Virginia, uh, who was quite upset that the Mountain Valley Pipeline, uh, a natural gas pipeline that will go through his state, um, will will which will benefit Joe Manchin, the West Virginia senator. Uh, you know that it was inserted in the bill. There wasn't much he could do. Ultimately, they had to pass it quickly. They voted on eleven amendments, uh, most of which, all of which, failed. Uh, and now that bill is going to go to the president's desk and be signed uh, just in the nick of time before default on uh, June fifth. Is there anything Senator Kane can do at this point about the, the Mount, Mountain Valley Pipeline and his objections to, to the way that's been handled? I think he did all he could do. He put up an amendment. It failed. And, uh, you know, the Mountain Valley Pipeline is going to go through. And it's going to go through very quickly. If you read the bill text, uh, within the next uh, 30 days, all the permitting is supposed to be expedited. You mentioned defense spending. Under the bill, spending in 2024 would be capped at $886 billion. That is an annual increase of 3%. The following year, the budget would keep the increase to 1%. 
Maine Republican Senator Susan Collins has called that figure, quote, woefully inadequate. Arkansas Republican Senator Tom Cotton went further. Iran is rushing towards a nuclear bomb. Russia has unleashed the largest European invasion since the Second World War. And China is plotting the conquest of Taiwan. Our military stockpiles are depleted and our defense supply chains are broken or strained. We need a military to match this perilous moment. Eva, to what extent is the defense budget sort of a political third rail for for both Republicans and Democrats? I mean, something you just don't touch. That's right, because no one wants to be seen as shortchanging our troops. This is actually one area where some Republicans think more spending is actually okay, from what you heard there. Some defense hawks in Congress actually wanted the Pentagon, as you heard, to get a significant funding boost and have been spending the past several months arguing that President Biden's $800 plus billion proposal for the Defense Department was inadequate. Uh, But ultimately, this deal increased spending for military and veterans affairs in line with inflation. We're with CNN's Eva McKend, Indris Kaloon from The Economist, and Bloomberg's Joe Matthew. Joe, why didn't Biden use this opportunity to get rid of the debt ceiling altogether using the 14th Amendment, as some have suggested? Uh, Great question. And and they're kind of two separate questions, because even if he did invoke the 14th Amendment, it would not do away with the debt limit. And there is, in fact, legislation on Capitol Hill right now that's uh, got sponsors in the House and the Senate, not enough to be passed, that would do away with the debt ceiling once and for all. Chris Van Hollen, the senator from Maryland, wrote this bill. I talked to him uh, recently about it. And he knows he doesn't have the votes to make this happen, but it's a pretty popular idea when you talk to some members, not necessarily getting rid of it altogether, but but reforming the debt limit, if you will, so mm-hmm. it coincides with the fiscal year and won't mean this brinksmanship separate from a budget negotiation, which really complicated things here, uh, certainly over the last couple of weeks. In terms of the 14th Amendment, the president always kept it on the table, but the White House didn't want to go there because they knew that it actually might not avoid a default. It would get held up in court and there was no time to play with. There is, however, a thought that the White House might look at a couple of these options, like the 14th Amendment, run it through some legal stress tests and see if that might be an option. Because I hate to break it to everybody, two years from now, it's pretty likely we're going to be going through this all over again. Yeah. I mean, are are we just fast forward two years and we're in the same place again, you think? It's most likely. You know, like I said, you're not going to have the votes because the the minority uses the debt ceiling for leverage. And so you're just not going to get the votes to do away with it in a divided government. Whether it can be reformed or moved, maybe that's the long-term picture. But from every lawmaker we talk to, there just isn't support to do away with this because it means leverage for the minority. So the the good news for Joe Biden is they extended it beyond the presidential election. And if he were to be reelected, he'll have to deal with it in his second term. Briefly, Idris, 30 seconds or so. How might this deal shape some of the debate around the next election? Well, it'll be a welcome present for whoever uh, wins the White House. Their uh, extraordinary measures are going to kick off on January 2nd, 2025, and they're going to be consumed in their first 100 days with finding yet another fix for a debt ceiling crisis. So it's uh, it's not behind us at all. It's the gift that keeps on giving. It seems like we have this conversation every couple of years, right? And we'll be back to it soon. But for now, we get to move on. We're rounding up the week's biggest news. We'll be back with more after this short break. So stay with us. This message comes from NPR sponsor, Live Right, publishers of Left for Dead. 
Shipwreck, Treachery, and Survival at the Edge of the World by Eric J. Dolan. The true story of five castaways abandoned on the Falkland Islands during the War of 1812. Available wherever books are sold. This message comes from NPR sponsor Mint Mobile. From the gas pump to the grocery store, inflation is everywhere. So Mint Mobile is offering premium wireless starting at just $15 a month. To get your new phone plan for just $15, go to mintmobile.com slash switch. When voters talk during an election season, we listen. We ask questions, we follow up, and we bring you along to hear what we learn. Get closer to the issues, the people, and your vote at the NPR Elections Hub. Visit npr.org slash elections. Let's get back to the news roundup and turn now to Texas. In a Wild West end to the legislative session in Texas, Republican Attorney General Ken Paxton was impeached by his fellow GOP lawmakers in the Texas House on Saturday. Several members of this House, while on the floor of this House doing the state business, received telephone calls from General Paxton personally threatening them with political consequences in their next election. That was Texas State Representative Charlie Guerin, a Republican from Lake Worth near Fort Worth. The tally was not even close. 121 lawmakers voted for impeachment, only 23 against. Paxton's Senate trial is set for August 28th. A House committee had been secretly investigating Paxton since he requested $3.3 million from the Texas legislature to pay a whistleblower settlement against him. Eva, the Republican-led committee filed 20 articles of impeachment against Paxton. What is he accused of doing, first of all? Yeah, Sarah, I mean, this is just a remarkable case. I don't know anyone facing as many legal battles as Ken, Ken Paxton beyond maybe Donald Trump. Essentially, seven top Paxton aides in 2020, they publicly accused him of bribery and abusing his office. Those aides reported these allegations to the FBI. They were all fired or put on leave. They had accused him of using his authority to essentially benefit a longtime political friend by the name of Nate Paul. He's a real estate investor who had donated tens of thousands of dollars to Paxton's campaign. Now, Paxton agreed in February to a $3.3 million settlement in an apology but no admission of wrongdoing. And here is where he ran into some issues because Instead of him personally paying that money, he tried to get the state to pay for that money, the the state to pay that settlement. And then that is what triggered this House panel probe. And ultimately, members of his own party, I think, agree with these whistleblowers. And that is ultimately why he was impeached. One of the articles accuses Paxton of using employees of the attorney general's office to write a legal opinion intended to help his friend avoid foreclosure on one of his properties. And essentially, they're arguing that he grossly misused his power in that office. What makes this all the more remarkable is this this is not the only issue facing Ken Paxton. He has been under indictment since 2015 and on state securities fraud charges relating to activities prior to him taking the AG post. He's pleaded not guilty to those charges, and the case has just been delayed over various procedural issues for now going on eight years. But all the while, Texas Republicans have kept reelecting him. 
Yeah, what is the political calculus here? I mean, are, are, are Texas Republicans, are his colleagues just sort of hitting a wall with the number of accusations? Do you have a sense of sort of why they're, they're um, coming together now uh, against him? I think that the they they are are arguing that the the evidence at this point is just overwhelming, and Paxton he's saying, well, this is all a political hit job that these Republicans are Republicans in name only, but you know Paxton's extreme right politics is not a problem for him in Texas. I think many of those lawmakers in the state are inclined to support him on his political beliefs. That's, you know, him being a conservative firebrand is not his issue. Uh, They argue that it's the malfeasance, it's the alleged corruption that basically they can take no more of. I mean, the governor had to appoint an interim AG, and it is someone who very much is politically in line with many Republicans in this state. So the the politics is not the issue, it's uh, the alleged corruption. Now, Joe, you know, another interesting wrinkle in this whole thing, Ken Paxton's wife, Angela Paxton, is one of the state senators who could decide his fate in a Senate trial this summer. The allegations against Paxton include details that he allegedly had an extramarital affair with another woman. How could that complicate things? Yes, what could go wrong here? Um, There's a big question about whether uh, she might recuse herself, and it appears uh, that she has no plans to do this. This is uh, State Senator Angela Paxton, who you know was was out stumping for her husband. They helped each other out. He actually gave her a sizable loan for her own campaign and is now uh, serving in a second term and has been asked repeatedly about this and typically will just not even acknowledge reporters asking her. The Lieutenant Governor, Dan Patrick, uh, who controls the Senate, was asked about this recently in a television interview in Texas and uh, and said that Angela Paxton uh, will likely participate in the trial. All 31 senators, he said, will have a seat here. Uh, so this is a, a pretty remarkable circumstance in not only a spouse but a political ally and, to your point, a charge that includes bribery related to an extramarital affair. So uh, as if the case didn't need uh, more intrigue, there you go. You know, we should also mention that Paxton is a Trump ally. He's been outspoken on uh, g- against gender-affirming care for trans kids in Texas, which he called, quote, child abuse. He ordered the Department of Children and Family Services to investigate parents. He's filed immigration lawsuits against President Biden. He's also been vocally opposed to abortion rights. Idris, what could Paxton's impeachment mean for the Texas GOP as a whole? You know, I think Ken Paxton is a flukish force that is somewhat uh, uncorrelated with all the things that are going on in in the Texas GOP. I think Texas is still Trump's country, and the circumstances are just so odd with the wife, with the potential mistress, uh, with the fact that he's been under investigation for eight years, the entire the entirety of the time that Trump has been a force in in national politics, um, and the fact that uh, this investigation uh, really took off after uh, the bizarre episode in which the Attorney General Ken Paxton accused uh, Dade Phelan, the Speaker of the Texas House, of being drunk on the floor. And then all of a sudden, this this impeachment emerged. It passed overwhelmingly. I don't think that it was a repudiation of Trumpism. I don't expect that to be the case. Um, I don't think it's a repudiation even of Ken Paxton's policies. Uh, I think it's a repudiation of Ken Paxton, the man. Um, And I think as a result, he'll he'll fade. I think this this reminds me a bit of the Roy Moore um, situation where... Alabama? uh, Yeah, yeah, where... uh, 
you know, he said that the accusations against him were uh, were politically motivated, and and I think that there aren't that many people who can replicate Trump's uh, uh, Teflon uh, effect. I think it's a fairly unique uh, skin that he's able to wear. Moving next to Nevada, the Democratic legislature there passed a bill creating harsher penalties for election worker intimidation. Republican Governor Joe Lombardo signed it into law on Tuesday. Here's Nevada Secretary of State Cisco Aguilar speaking with KOLO 8 News back in April. They're walking to their car. They've been approached. They've been intimidated. They've been harassed. We've had individuals, when they're at home with their family, have individuals knock at their doors and know and say things that are inappropriate for anybody to hear, especially children in the home. The Nevada Secretary of State made this legislation one of his campaign promises. What are we hearing from officials in charge of elections around the country as we head into the 2024 election cycle, Joe? Well, Nevada is joining uh, a growing club here. We've we've actually seen other states take similar steps, including Oklahoma, including uh, Maine and Vermont, Washington, New Mexico. After what we saw in the last uh, election cycle, 2020 specifically, and then again to a, uh, to some extent in 22, where we had these so-called monitors who were going out there, in many cases, uh, Trump supporters uh, who would park their trucks near uh, near ballot drop boxes, for instance, they were filming people in some cases as they were coming and going from polling locations and, and just frankly scaring election workers at the same time. Here's a, a statistic for you. More than half of the top election officials uh, in Nevada stepped down between the 20 election and the 22 midterms because of, in many cases, election threats. We saw, in, in some cases, election workers uh, testifying in the, before the January 6th committee. Uh, and this is serious business. Uh, the law makes it a felony to disseminate personal information about an election worker uh, and would go even further uh, to use uh, for anyone who would intimidate or, or try to attack an election worker performing duties in Nevada. This might be something that becomes uh, just a, a national issue on, on, on state by state as we head for the general election cycle, because it's it's making it very difficult for these workers to stay safe. And, and we have seen election officials, you know, stepping down or expressing concern about staying on around the country. Staying in Nevada for a moment, going against the majority of his party. On Tuesday, Governor Lombardo became the third Republican governor to enshrine abortion protections for out-of-state patients traveling into Nevada into law. Uh, Vermont Governor Phil Scott and former Massachusetts Governor Charlie Baker also codified abortion rights after Roe was overturned. Lombardo described himself as, quote, pro-life when he was running. Eva, how have Republican attitudes or policies shifted at the state level since Roe was overturned? Well, he is operating as a governor of a swing state. He only narrowly won his election. He's in no political position to take a hardline stance on abortion. So I would say him signing this into law is just a reflection of listening to the voters in that state. And I think that is what Republican governors in swing states, purple states, have to do. They have to listen to the electorate, you know, regardless of their own personal views. I think we could see other, and we have seen other Republican governors in similar situations take this position. But essentially... It is not far-fetched to think about, you know, potentially women from other states coming into Nevada being criminalized for seeking reproductive care. Sarah, you know this better than anyone as someone who studies abortion um, 
access in this country. And so this is why they decided to codify this into law. They're not going to cooperate with any other states where abortion may be outlawed if women do come into Nevada seeking care. You know, Eva, one thing I thought was interesting yesterday is I haven't heard much from uh, anti-abortion groups you know, about Lombardo's action. I even sought one out and, and got no response. Um, what do you make of, of that, of sort of the, the language around this issue that we're hearing from the movement and the Republican Party as a whole right now? Maybe in Nevada, they think that this battle is not worth picking here in this state, given the political makeup, and that they are, in Lombardo, going to get uh, as close as an ally as they can. I think it's one of those situations where... I think the the right has to consider the alternative, even if they don't like where he's coming down on some policy matters. And that their energy, I think, is best uh, spent in other places where they are more likely to secure political wins. Yeah, it makes a lot of sense. Also, in one more abortion-related news item this week, on Wednesday, Oklahoma's Supreme Court ruled that two laws passed last year banning most abortions in that state are unconstitutional. Those laws relied on civil enforcement. But this decision doesn't nullify the 1910 law already banning most abortions. That law is still in effect. Let's turn now to some news out of California. State Farm, the largest home insurer in California, will no longer accept new applications for coverage. That move is part of a larger trend of private insurance companies refusing to cover homes in high-risk areas. Idris, what is State Farm's reason for doing this? Yeah, it's an extraordinary shift. And not only are they going to refuse to sell home insurance in places that are exposed to wildfires, but they're going to refuse to accept new applications anywhere in the state. And they, according to them, say that it was a business decision. They cited, quote, rapidly growing catastrophe exposure, um, which is not what you want to hear from an insurance company. But uh, what, what you see is what's gone on in many other states as well. So Florida has long had an issue with um, hurricane exposure, uh, Louisiana as well. Um, And in those states, uh, they've set up uh, systems to subsidize effectively home insurance. Uh, If you go to Florida and talk to voters, the number one issue they bring up is the cost of flood insurance. Um, And these systems are buckling. Uh, What happens when the government uh, subsidizes this set of of insurance is that it actually just shifts the uh, cost elsewhere. Um, If you don't address the fact that there's just higher risk, uh, it's going to be borne in some way. Either the government is going to pay or if you make uh, – homeowners bear the cost, then they, then they won't live in the places that uh, a lot of them want to. And uh, given that climate change isn't going anywhere, uh, I expect that you will have to see this kind of market reaction force people to move before, uh, b- b- before anything really changes. I mean, what options are left for California homeowners? Clearly not State Farm. Not State Farm. They have other options that are available to them. Uh, and, you know, I think this is a big enough issue that you could expect uh, the federal government to to take a look at it. I mean, California has a fifth of America's citizens. It's not exactly trivial. Uh, and uh, this should be a wake-up call to uh, to the way that all these insurance markets are working because they're, they are similarly fragile in many other states. And uh, it's also not just Florida and Louisiana. We saw exposure um, in New York, right? Right, and, and with Hurricane Sandy, in that case, you know we have the federal government acting as the uh, catastrophe insurance of last resort, but that's going to become increasingly expensive. And uh, even though this debt ceiling deal was uh, intended to 
fix the fiscal trajectory of the country, uh, it won't really have made much difference. Joe, we just heard Idris talking about some of the other states that have been affected, like Florida, by you know severe weather and limitations on insurance coverage. But, but is this? I mean, has this ever happened before? Has a private insurance company of this size, like State Farm, completely halted new coverage for an entire state? I think completely is the key word there, and that it, it, it does appear to be a first. But we did see uh, Liberty Mutual largely uh, pull back from home insurance in California over the past couple of years for for very similar reasons. And you know, there, there are more factors to this. This has to do with with the reinsurance market, where we're seeing rates go up. Uh, in, in some cases, doubling uh, from the beginning of the year here. Uh, some of that has to do with storm damage. Some of it has to do with the war in Ukraine. And then there's the issue of inflation, which has just really bizarre tentacles as we live through this uh, and things that in many cases you can't predict. Now, you know, construction costs, we talk so much about uh, the high cost of materials, lumber, uh, roofing and so forth is making it incredibly difficult to keep up with the cost here in, in the insurance market. So it's bad news for people who live in California. There is uh, a, a high-risk, privately-run insurance pool, the fair plan they can get involved in, but that's not an improvement. Lots of challenges, and not just in California. We'll be back with more of the week's biggest headlines in just a moment. You're listening to the News Roundup. This episode's sponsor is PwC, which offers the following message. A robot may not be coming for your job, but competitors are coming for your market share. PwC pairs the right tech with the right solutions to help you gain a competitive edge. Reimagine operations from the cloud, fuel innovation with responsible AI, and detect risks before they become headlines. Human-led and tech-powered, it's all part of the new equation from PwC. Support for NPR and the following message come from Jarl and Pamela Moan, thanking the people who make public radio great every day and also those who listen. Now let's get back to the roundup. Tensions over abortion rights are stalling some important federal business, from space funding to military confirmations. A bipartisan group of legislators from Alabama submitted a House bill that, if passed, would block funding for the Space Command's temporary headquarters in Colorado until the location of the permanent headquarters is finalized. Now, the Trump administration said the headquarters would be in Alabama, but Biden administration officials are considering halting that move due to the state's restrictive abortion laws. Here's more from Republican Senator Tommy Tuberville on the planned move. The Air Force chose Huntsville, Alabama, as the new home of Spacecom, which will eventually be home to more than 1,400 personnel. But that was 16 months ago. Since then, the decision has been tied up in government reviews by the Inspector General at the Department of Defense and the Government Accountability Office at the request of other lawmakers. And despite pleas from top defense officials and Democratic leaders, Senator Tuberville is also holding up the Senate confirmations of more than 200 military commanders and generals. The Alabama Republican is unhappy with the military's policy allowing access to abortion for service members. So, Idris, how is this stark divide on abortion rights affecting our government's ability just to function in some of these areas? 
Well, we're seeing what a single lone senator can do in a chamber that requires unanimous consent for almost everything that it does. And in Senator Tuberville's case, like you just said, there are 200 military leaders whose nominations are basically permanently on hold because he disagrees with the Department of Defense's policy, which is not to clarify to pay for abortions, but to allow uh, service members to take time off and to receive travel expenses for for getting one. Um, But you know, he can do that. And he's done that over the complaints of Democrats. But also, you know, Mitch McConnell is not a fan of this. And yet he continues to do so. And I think you're going to see this continued. Um, the fact that uh, the abortion is left now to the states and some have basically uh, criminalized it completely and others allow it um, has increased tension not only in, in Congress, but between states. Some states no longer allow their officials to travel to uh, states in which abortion is, is effectively illegal. Um, and that has rendered two divided uh, red and blue Americas uh, even further apart. And so I think you'll continue to see that because I I think that this is the status quo that we're going to be living with for a while. In other political news, we are 17 months away from the presidential elections and the field of Republican candidates continues to grow. Former New Jersey Governor Chris Christie is expected to throw his hat in the ring as soon as next week. Former Vice President Mike Pence also planning to announce his candidacy in Iowa next week. Earlier this week, former President Donald Trump joined conservative cable network Fox News to mock, to mock the Republican contenders. I don't know why people are doing it. They're at one percent. Some are at zero. I hear Chris Christie's coming in. He, he's at he was at he was at six percent in New Jersey, which is I love New Jersey, but six percent approval rating in New Jersey. What's the purpose? And he's, he's polling at zero. Joe, it's true that Trump is polling at the top of the pack and has been for a while in the GOP race. With these two new contenders joining the field, does that shake things up at all? It will. It's just a question of how. And there are a couple of different ways to look at this. Uh, you know, Chris Christie in particular is kind of seen as the as, as a hired assassin in this case, a hitman that Republicans would like to see knock down Trump. So either he or someone else, frankly, uh, might win the nomination. And he does fancy himself as the only person who can stand on a debate stage and dispatch Donald Trump, although there are many questions about whether Donald Trump will even submit uh, to a debate. He might not show up to any of them. He sees himself as an incumbent and above all of this, particularly because of his polling numbers. The other way to look at this, though, is you add Chris Christie and Mike Pence next week. We've got Ron DeSantis now in the race and several others who don't get a lot of talk from Nikki Haley to Asa Hutchinson. And the more people end up on that stage and in this pool, it also makes it potentially easier for Donald Trump to win the nomination because they're all taking a a little piece of the pie here. We saw this happen in 2016. Exactly. And so uh, there's there's a bit of concern that, well, you know, they've all got the guns out for Donald Trump here. They might actually make it easier for him to win the nomination. That's the hope of the White House, by the way even as uh, Ron DeSantis tries to creep up on the former president. Because any other lane of the party that isn't Trump, just it just it gets diluted and diluted until the only the only lane that matters is the Trump lane. And, and that's how it's looking right now. But as you say, we'll see what happens as more people get into the race. You know, Eva, at one point, both Christie and certainly Pence, of course, closely allied themselves with Trump. What does their reversal, their decision to run against him, uh, signal about how the Republican Party perceives the former president? I think there's just so much uncertainty involving the former president. He's already been indicted in one jurisdiction. He could be indicted in others. And so I think that is why we've seen an increasing number of Republicans willing to take him on, especially wealthier 
candidates who have the ability to self-fund. Governor Doug Burgum of North Dakota is going to be jumping into the fray as well next week. And as I've been traveling the country, speaking to voters, yes, Trump still captures the hearts of a lot of the Republican base, but there are some Republican voters in critical states like Iowa who have real concerns about him being able to win in a general election. And I think that if I'm hearing that, these candidates, their operatives are hearing that as well. And that is why you're seeing so many people get into this race. In Iowa, for instance, it doesn't take, it's not a very large pool of voters. It's largely Christian evangelical voters in the Republican primary. If you spend a lot of time there and have a ground game there, we have seen historically people with, uh, maybe low name IDs in this part of the race pull off an upset. And so I think that's why we're seeing so many people want to try to at least compete. You know, I've heard that too, Eva. I've I've traveled in the last few months to, to New Mexico and South Carolina, come, among other places, and, you know, heard Republican voters express sort of fatigue about Trump and concern that he whether, about whether or not he can win. But Almost everybody I talked to said they'd absolutely support him if he's the nominee. And I think, you know, that it, it always seems to come back to that by and large. You know, Idris, as the prospects grow, how are these candidates trying to distinguish themselves from one another on the GOP side? I think they're having a difficult time. Uh, Trumpism is still the commanding ideology of the Republican Party. When he was in the White House, uh, Republicans competed with one another in competitive bouts of fealty. Uh, and now we see even the candidates who are running against him are struggling to say where they disagree with him. A lot of them are presenting, in the case of Ron DeSantis, for example, Trumpism without the drama. Uh, they aren't really uh, sketching out uh, big disagreements uh, with the former president, and that makes it harder uh, for one of them to ultimately succeed. At the moment, Trump is commanding a majority of Republican primary voters who say that they would vote for him. More Republicans say they're excited about him running than Democrats say they're excited about Joe Biden running. Um, so I think that's a problem for them as well. But as far as the few distinctions we can see, you know, there are some that are more internationalists, such as Nikki Haley and Mike Pence, who think that uh, it's important to continue to fund Ukraine uh, in their war effort against uh, Russia's invasion. And uh, Donald Trump and Ron DeSantis are very much on the isolationist front uh, on that. And I think there are others, such as Asa Hutchinson, uh, who uh, are much more willing to criticize the president over his handling of January 6th, more willing to attack him for his legal liabilities. Uh, but there isn't very much of a lane for that in the party. You know, there's a reason that Liz Cheney is excommunicado, and I think will remain that way. And Eva, uh, because of that lack of enthusiasm that Idris just alluded to among you know Democrats for for President Biden, among many Democrats, there's a lot of speculation about whether or not someone might challenge him from within. What do you see as the chances that there will be a significant Democratic challenger to President Biden? Well, I think because there hasn't been, I think, a credible challenge thus far. And then also the DNC is really protecting him. There aren't going to be any debates. And so I think that the, the opportunity to really mount a real challenge is very, very difficult. There's a lot of hand-wringing. There's a lot of consternation, especially on the ground when you speak to voters. But ultimately, when if you speak to voters and they determine that the it's going to come down to Trump or Biden, you know, those same voters who are not excited about President Biden say they will absolutely vote for him if it's a Trump-Biden matchup or even if it's a Trump-DeSantis matchup, Sarah. 
A federal appeals court has ruled to protect the billionaire Sackler family from all future civil opioid suits against their company, Purdue Pharma. That ruling is part of Purdue's bankruptcy plan, and the company filed for bankruptcy in 2019. Since then, 400 lawsuits against the Sackler family have been filed. Joe, I want to ask you about this. Companies that file for bankruptcy often get shielded from legal claims against them, but private citizens do not. So what does this ruling mean for the Sacklers? Well, you know, it means actually it's – you can look at this a couple of different ways. The headline feels outrageous. They're getting off the hook is what it feels like. But the fact is it's a settlement. And this is coming in exchange for a $6 billion payout – uh, from the Sackler family that 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 is essentially being unlocked here. They've they've long asked for civil immunity, and while the payments are going to be spread out over some time, this goes to local and state governments and will actually help to pay for rehab programs, addiction treatments around the country. Uh, some of the money as well will go to individual victims of the opioid crisis and their families. Remembering that there were so many, to your point, so many cases and lawsuits against. Uh, the family here, that it put this massive company worth about $11 billion, or the the family at least, into bankruptcy here. So the Court of Appeals uh, issued this ruling knowing that it would also mean a a good deal of money going out to those uh, who were affected. Uh, And I will also add that the Sackler family gives up ownership of the company as part of this settlement as well. Uh, so it, it's being looked at as as fairly balanced following a lot of years of litigation. I spent some time watching this case in Boston federal court uh, when Maura Healy, the attorney general in Massachusetts, went after the Sacklers successfully. And this is quite a resolution here many years later. And, and what about other companies? Eva, how might this ruling affect companies filing for bankruptcy in the future? Yeah, I think that is the the big question. Uh, legal observers say that the question now is whether bankruptcy can be used as a shield against litigation by parties who aren't themselves bankrupt, um, and that this case cases like this actually could ultimately make its way to the Supreme Court. It's not entirely clear. We could see mass litigation over other issues like toxic chemical exposure or contaminated water. But I think that is very much to be determined. And Idris, uh, what this means for Purdue Pharma is they pay $6 billion to individuals and communities affected by the opioid crisis in return for this legal shield we just mentioned. What happens next with this case? I think this is the resolution of the case. You know, there's the chance that this gets appealed to the Supreme Court. But I think that uh, the chance that the Supreme Court takes it on is is minimal, and so this is probably the the, the final chapter uh, for Purdue Pharma and the Sacklers, uh, none of whom have been charged with a criminal offense, uh, despite the fact that Purdue Pharma has pled guilty uh, to uh, to criminal charges twice. Um, and you know, this six billion dollars is certainly a, a, a fair amount. Uh, it'll go like uh, like Joe said uh, to um, to helping people who are who are being affected by opioid abuse and uh, and addiction. But you know, the the problem really is that opioid addiction has moved on from pharmaceuticals and oxycontin. It you know the the wave of that happened in the early two thousands, and then people transitioned to being addicted to heroin, and now people are addicted to uh, fentanyl, which is incredibly cheap. It's shipped across the border. American drug overdoses are are at their highest level, and they continue to rise. It's a it's a terrible exponential curve and, and trend, and uh, you know the six billion dollars helps, but um, I don't think that it will make the kind of difference in, in investment that's needed uh, to uh, to actually get. Um, to, to get get America down. 
NASA's UFO panel held their first public meeting on Wednesday. Is NASA hiding anything about this? No. Answering this question is one of the things that NASA as an agency is, is excited about. These questions touch on something that I think is really a deep question for humanity is, are we alone in the universe? Big questions. That's David Spurgle, who's part of NASA's UAP independent study team. The Defense Department plans to examine 800 UFO, or as NASA now likes to say, UAP sightings from the past 27 years. That's according to the Pentagon officials present at the meeting. Eva, this UFO inquiry, it's so interesting. It's the first of its kind. Why now? What do you make of it? Yeah, I mean, I think because there have been questions for so long about these mysterious objects, what most surprised me about this is that NASA officials said that several panelists had been subjected to online abuse and that there's a lot of um, harassment since beginning their work. So that's really troubling. But ultimately, the the result thus far of, of this probe, and they, they said that they're going to have a full report later on, is that the data is really insufficient, that uh, the sightings of what appear to be objects, that the technology just isn't there to get a more precise read on what exactly it is. And Eva, what do we know about when that full report might be coming? I believe it is later this year. Joe, do you want to add anything? I just loved watching this. I was glued to all four hours of it and remembering retired astronaut Scott Kelly's story when he was an F-14 fighter pilot. They sh- they were sure they saw a UFO. So they turned the plane around flying over the ocean and they caught up with it. It turned out to be Bart Simpson, a balloon. <laughs> Perfect place to leave it. Thanks to, the, to everybody for the great conversation. We've been talking with Bloomberg's Joe Matthew, CNN's Eva McKend, Idris Kaloon from The Economist. Got a call from an old friend We used to be real close Said he couldn't go on the American way Before we turn to the global edition of the News Roundup, we bring you a musical note from New York City. On Thursday, Billy Joel announced that he plans to end his record-breaking residency at Madison Square Garden next year. The Piano Man's had a good run. After 10 years and 150 concerts, his total ticket sales already top $1.6 million. New York City Mayor Eric Adams said there's only one thing that's more New York than Billy Joel, and that's a Billy Joel concert at Madison Square Garden. For more than 50 years, Billy's music has defined our city and brought us together. I don't want you to tell me it's time to come home. Stay with us as we dive into the biggest headlines from around the world during the international edition of the News Roundup. We'll get into the latest in Ukraine, a new law in Uganda that's being criticized by human rights groups, and the Turkish runoff election. All that and more still ahead. Stay with us. This message comes from Capital One, presenting sponsor of the 2024 Tiny Desk Contest. 
Earlier this year, unsigned musicians from around the country submitted their original songs for the 10th annual Tiny Desk Contest. The panel of judges are hard at work picking standout entries, and you can follow along and choose your favorite videos as well. The winner gets to play their very own Tiny Desk concert, then headline a tour with NPR Music this summer. Want to come along for the ride? Visit tinydeskcontest.npr.org to learn more, then check out the Venture X card from presenting sponsor Capital One. Earn unlimited 2x miles on everything you buy and turn everyday purchases into extraordinary trips. What's in your wallet? Terms apply. See CapitalOne.com for details. This message comes from NPR sponsor, Bluehost. Try Bluehost Cloud, the hosting plan made for WordPress creators by WordPress experts. With 100% uptime, fast load times, and 24-7 support, your sites can handle high traffic spikes. Visit Bluehost.com. In this country, some truths aren't self-evident. In NPR's Black Stories, Black Truths, a collection of stories as wide-ranging and real as the people who tell them, we celebrate the Black experience for all its soul and richness. Search NPR Black Stories, Black Truths wherever you get podcasts. It's the international edition of the News Roundup. Coming up this hour, a range of reactions to drone attacks in the Russian capital this week. A ceasefire breaks down in Sudan and a rare admission of failure from the North Korean government. We're jumping all over the globe and I'm joined in studio by Jody Schneider, political news director at Bloomberg TV and Radio. Also Jack Detch, national security reporter at Foreign Policy. And on the line, Idris Ali, national security correspondent at Reuters. Welcome to all of you. This week, we are not starting in Ukraine, as we often do, but in Russia, where at least eight drones hit residential buildings in the capital, Moscow, on Tuesday morning. Russian President Putin said the attacks were, quote, obviously a sign of terrorist activity. Idris, the the drone attacks in Moscow hit elite suburbs. Uh, What do you make of this target? Yeah, so this is essentially the second time in recent weeks we've seen drones um, be able to penetrate through much of Russia and enter Moscow. We saw a couple of weeks ago uh, images of drones hitting the Kremlin. And earlier this week, we saw, as you said, eight drones um, enter Moscow. They were sort of the southwest suburbs of Moscow, where there are a lot of high-rise um luxury apartments. President Putin has an apartment there as well. And so it really shows the ability of uh, drones and and, and other sort of weapons to penetrate Russia and deep inside um, Russian territory. What we had seen in the past is that um, Ukraine and pro-Ukrainian forces had really resisted um, going into Russia for fear of provoking Russia further, um, for fear of escalating the situation. And Western countries themselves had really um, tried to put a stop um, on these type of attacks. What we're seeing is, is sort of different now. Uh, one thing to note is that Ukrainians have said they were not responsible for this, but they're not opposed to these types of attacks. So it still remains an open question who carried it out. But it really, um, I think, brings home the war for a lot of Russians. Until now, we had seen some cross-border attacks into some of the Russian cities, but most people in Moscow really didn't feel the impact of the war um, in, in a way the Ukrainians did. And so what we saw this week was, you know, the fact that Russia has been at war for more than a year with its neighbor coming home to a lot of people who live in Moscow. 
The attack comes after Russia's biggest drone attack on Kyiv on Sunday, which killed one person. And since Tuesday's attack on Russia, Kyiv has continued to endure these missile and drone attacks. At least three people were killed Wednesday night by a missile. Drone and missile attacks continued overnight into Friday morning. Jack, what can you tell us about the intensity of these attacks in Ukraine recently? Kyiv's been a city of three million sleepless people for a, a full month. You've seen the city hit by artillery shelling, Iranian drone attacks, ballistic missile attacks in 20 of the 31 days. This is people being pushed into bomb shelters in the dead of night and then having to go to work the next morning. So just uh, imagine the stress it's putting in the population. And, and that's kind of the method to Putin's madness here. He's trying to put stress on the Ukrainian population, just like he did with the electrical grid attacks uh, last year in, in November and December. But what you still see from the Ukrainian people is this resilience. 97% of, of people in Ukraine still believe they're going to win the war with Russia. And even amid these nightly attacks, we, we see on Twitter, uh, Ukrainians watching the attacks from their windows and even going out to their balconies, watching air defense operate and shoot down these Iranian-made drones. So a lot of resilience from the Ukrainian people, even amid this, this uptick in tempo. And Idris, you know, with the weapons systems that they have now, how much longer does it seem Ukraine can keep defending itself in this way? Well, that's an open question. And what we've seen in recent months is the West, including the United States and other NATO countries, really putting an emphasis on air defense systems. So what we saw in the first half or first real year of the war was a lot of weapons that would allow Ukraine to resist sort of some of the, the you know, ground invasions and, and, and other sorts of things. And what we've seen in recent months is Western countries saying we need to give Ukraine more air defense systems, more munitions so they can shoot down these types of missiles. I think part of the question can also be answered by how much does Russia have left? We know that Russia has switched from using precision guided munitions to what would be called dumb bombs. And those are far less accurate and, and more inaccurate. And, and, you know, they have a higher chance chance of hitting civilians. So what we're seeing and what we're going to, I think, continue seeing is an emphasis by the West on providing these type of air defense systems, some of the more defensive systems to allow Ukraine to sort of resist these attacks. And in the meantime, what the hope is that while Ukraine's defending um, from some of these Russian attacks, they're able to go on a counteroffensive in the coming weeks and try to push Russia back into its territory. It's something that I think most people and most experts and officials don't expect will fully succeed, but that might alleviate some of the pressure that we're seeing being put on Kyiv um, in recent days and weeks. And Jody, how much do we know about the attacks this week and, and whether the same groups are involved uh, that have been involved in, in recent attacks? You know, there have been cross-border attacks in Belgorod uh, yesterday that were reported yesterday, and that came after intense attacks on the border last week by anti-Putin Russia militia, Russian militias. Uh, what do we know about who's behind all of this? Yeah, I think it's still unclear. And, and the other issue here is the information we're getting out of these places. You know, one of the things when we're talking about about uh, the attacks in Russia is uh, how much information, uh, you know, we can get in an independent way, which has been a, a real source of concern, uh, you know, both in, in the West in terms of trying to uh, analyze this information. And there aren't, frankly, as many, you know, journalists on the ground in these places as there used to be, including in Russia. So I think um, trying to figure all that out uh, is something, you know, that, that uh, the State Department and, and other um, uh, and intelligence agencies are having some difficulty with. 
We're speaking with Bloomberg's Jody Schneider, Idris Ali from Reuters, and Foreign Policy's Jack Detch. This is the Friday International News Roundup. We also want to hear from you. Do you have questions about any of the global news stories we're discussing today? Email us at 1A, that's the number one, the letter A, at wamu.org, or tweet us at 1A. Uh, And also, Jody, a top Russian official wrote on Twitter that UK politicians are now a a legitimate military target for Russia. This comes after UK Foreign Secretary James Cleverly defended Ukraine's right to use force beyond its own borders. Just explain, if you would, what's going on with this exchange. Yeah, so I think that that obviously was the provocation, uh, what uh, Mr. Cleverly had said. And uh, and clearly this is, you know, this happens uh, earlier with the U.S. with statements that were made uh, by Anthony Blinken and others that uh, the Russia kind of uh, – you know, pushed back against, and now I think we're we're going to see that. Um, you know, probably in other places too. Uh, cleverly, is the latest uh, in these targets. Idris, how aligned are the U.S. and the U.K. Uh, when it comes to Ukraine's actions in this war? Yeah, what we've seen in recent weeks is not a divergence, but um, some sort of uh, differences appearing um, publicly. So President Biden himself and all the way down to his cabinet secretaries have said that while we support Ukraine, one of our biggest fears is that we do not provoke Russia. We don't want the war to expand into NATO territory. And there, the administration has really been focused on not giving Putin a reason to do that. And so publicly, even privately, they have insisted that the weapons that they are giving to Ukraine cannot and should not be used um, inside Russia. That way they don't give Putin an excuse to sort of go out into other NATO countries or to expand his war. What we're seeing with the um, British government and some of the comments recently made is is more of a willingness to not necessarily promote um, attacks into Russia by Ukraine, but sort of an acceptance that that might be something that is necessary. And so it's one of those things where I think they're ultimately aligned on the same goal, which is to get Russia out of Ukraine. But I think there is a difference in um, the level of tolerance for risk. I think the Brits seem to have more for risk tolerance, whereas the Americans and President Biden have made it clear that it's just not something they see as acceptable. And what we saw is even after the attacks on Belgorod and the attacks on Kremlin, the White House coming out publicly and saying, we do not support Ukraine attacking Russia in any way um, inside Russian borders. So I think they have emphasized it and re-emphasized it. And it's one of those things that I think they're also making clear to the Ukrainians privately. Also this week, Russia's Interior Ministry issued an arrest warrant for U.S. Senator Lindsey Graham, putting the Republican South Carolina senator on a wanted list. This comes after an edited video of Graham meeting with Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky. Ukraine released a longer video of the meeting afterwards. Big, big support. Very important. The best money we've ever spent. Thank you so much. No, it's... You know, we're on four, let's see, this is 457th day of a war that was supposed to last three days. You amaze me. Your country amazes me. It's about our people. And about your people. Your people help help our people all our appreciation. Just, I mean, you remind me of our better selves in America. That there was a time in America that we were this way. Fighting to the last person, we're going to be free or die. 
Free or die. Free or die. Now you are free. Yes. And we will be. And the Russians are dying. Jack, what was the issue with the edited video? Well, Graham didn't say exactly what the Ukrainians made him out to say, but he seems to be loving this incident, right? He was happy to provoke the Kremlin. He called this sanction a a badge of honor. So really what it seems like is the Republican hawks in Congress want to get the Biden administration to say the quiet part out loud. This war is about degrading Russia's military capability. Senator Graham later tweeted, quote, I will wear the arrest warrant issued by Putin's corrupt and immoral government as a badge of honor. Let's turn to another incident of tension between China and the United States. On Monday, the U.S. released video of a Chinese fighter jet conducting a, quote, unnecessarily aggressive maneuver by darting in front of an American surveillance plane over the South China Sea. The maneuver by the Chinese J-16 forced the U.S. plane to fly through the jet's turbulence. Idris, I want to start with that incident. It happened last Friday. What do we see happening in the video, first of all? Yeah, so it's it's one of those incidents that happens uh, every now and then, and, and it's, it was released by the U.S. military earlier this week. And what it really shows is a Chinese fighter jet um, on the right side of this American military plane over the South China Sea, and then it making a sharp left in front of the American plane, and then you see um, pretty severe turbulence for the pilots, um, and then you sort of see the, the jet going away. Um, it's important to remember, I think, that you know when you see the video, it looks pretty um, concerning, and then when you talk to officials and pilots, they sort of play it down. Um, the, the, the Chinese jet was about 400 feet away from the American plane, even though in the video it looks pretty close, um, and what they say is that these type of incidents have become pretty normal. They say the Americans do similar things um, with the Chinese planes and Russian planes, and interestingly enough, um, the U.S. military has a way of characterizing interactions um, with other countries. You know, They're either safe and professional or unsafe and professional. And this incident, while, um, you know, pretty interesting and, and, and pretty interesting video as well, was not something that they characterized as unsafe. Um, and so while the risk to the pilots and to the aircraft itself wasn't um, too bad, it's one of those videos that I think um, grabs a lot of attention and shows just how close some of the countries um, in the South China Sea, like the United States and China, are operating not just uh, in the sea, but um, in the skies above it as well. Yeah, Jack, as Idris just indicated, I mean, this isn't the first time that Chinese planes have done something like this to U.S. military aircraft. What does it mean? Well, it it sort of characterizes the the relationship in, in sort of this this name and shame uh, approach, right? I mean, what we saw was the Biden administration really trying to seek out this meeting between Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin uh, and his Chinese counterpart in, in Singapore this weekend, where defense leaders are, are gathered for a conference, uh, so they could read them the Riot Act about incidents like this, or at least extracts of, of the riot act, if, if you would. Now, of course, the, the Chinese have not wanted to be lectured about this type of stuff. And, and we saw actually Li Shang-Fu, the Chinese defense minister, opt for a handshake instead of actually meeting with Austin. Uh, so while you have the U.S. very keen to set military guardrails in the relationship, even though they're not naming and shaming as hard as they usually would in a situation like this, China's keen to basically put a dent in the guardrail and, and see how far they can push before they actually provoke a reaction. So this is now kind of a moment where we have an inflection point within the Biden administration. Some want to keep pursuing meetings. Some actually want to diverge from that path uh, and begin to take a more aggressive approach. So this could be a potential moment for a change in strategy. I like that metaphor of a dent in the guardrail. It doesn't maybe move anything, but it, it makes a, it makes a mark. It makes a point, right? It, it definitely makes a mark. 
On Thursday, the Chinese Foreign Ministry spokesperson Mao Ning addressed the incident. The U.S. side should immediately stop such dangerous and provocative actions. Meanwhile, China will continue to take necessary measures to firmly safeguard its sovereignty and security. Now, the, the incident comes as Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin arrives in Japan for meetings with officials there. The trip will also take him to India, followed by a major speech at the Shangri-La Dialogue in Singapore. China's Defense Minister Ling Shangfu continues to refuse to speak with Austin despite repeated U.S. requests in recent months. Now, Jody, how closely is the prospect of a meeting being watched, given these rising tensions we've been talking about between the U.S. and China right now? Yeah, well, it's being very closely watched, I think, um, um, uh, both in uh, Beijing and in Washington. Uh, they did have a handshake, kind of awkward today, uh, at the uh, at the Shangri-La Dialogue, but they are not going to meet. Uh, Beijing has clearly rebuffed that U.S. request uh, for the Defense Secretary, Lloyd Austin, Austin to meet his counterpart. And uh, the U.S. has been trying to get these talks for months. Beijing clearly uh, wants sanctions that the U.S. put uh, on, on Li, the um, uh, Lloyd Austin's counterpart uh, in 2018. They want those removed. A step the Biden administration has uh, considered. Uh, they haven't ruled it out, but they're not really making a lot of progress towards that. And the other issues that we've talked about and the spy balloon incident uh, earlier this year have really uh, you know, raised the stakes for China to decide whether this is the time they want to be seen as talking to the Americans on defense issues. Do you see any resolution to all of this? Not anytime soon. I, I don't think that there's a whole lot of reason for the for Chinese officials uh, to give in at this point. It doesn't really do them a whole lot of good uh, internally. And it also doesn't, I think, on the world stage, um, especially with the complications of Ukraine and the relationship, their relationship with Russia, uh, to be seen as giving in to the Americans when they think the Americans are being provocative. And especially when you throw the issue of Taiwan in and say uh, Speaker McCarthy's recent meeting with the Taiwanese president in California. California earlier this year. And what about those sanctions you mentioned? Is is there any update on that spy balloon situation? Yeah, we haven't really heard from the U.S. on this. Uh, the U.S. sort of, uh, you know, Biden, when he's when he's asked about it, says, well, you know, the whole thing was unfortunate. Uh, we haven't really heard much about uh, what really happened there. And it's still being studied, we're told. Now to Uganda. On Monday, President Yoweri Museveni signed the, quote, Anti-Homosexuality Act into law. It's now one of the harshest anti-LGBTQ plus laws in the world. Homosexuality already was illegal in Uganda, but the law Museveni signed this week criminalizes it further. Gay sex could be punished by life in prison or what the law calls, quote, aggravated homosexuality could call for the death penalty. Now, Jody, as we mentioned, homosexuality already was illegal in Uganda. Just walk us through, if you would, how this legislation was pushed to an even greater extreme in Uganda. Yeah, and we actually have somewhat of an update, too, because we have uh, Ugandan uh, LGBTQ activists filing a lawsuit uh, in the constitutional court there that challenges the law. Uh, they, 10 individuals in the civil rights organization, filed a petition for this uh, so-called Anti-Homosexuality Act to be struck down. Uh, so basically, this is, um, you know, as you say, it would uh, uh, basically... Uh, 
homosexual is, is banned in more than half of uh, 55 African nations and frowned upon in others, Uganda, uh, which inherited its original anti-gay laws from Britain, uh, has now kind of doubled down on this. U.S. evangelical groups uh, have said that LGBTQ practices contrary to the culture and have no place in Uganda, which has backed this. Now we're seeing some uh, legal action. We've also heard um, the U.S. Uh, officially come out and say they do not support this law. Uh, we've heard uh, that this week. But um, it is. it looks like it's going to somewhat go through their courts there as well. Well, you mentioned U.S. Uh, Christian right groups, Jody. I mean, it's not just statements, right? It's also been funding and, and activism, has it not? That's true, yes. Uh, and uh, we've seen that. Uh, we, we saw in February the Archbishop of the Church of New Uganda uh, condemned this decision by the Church of England to allow clergy to preside over blessing for same-sex marriages. And that basically um, was a kind of a turning point, and you saw some of these evangelical groups uh, fund this effort in Uganda. And Idris, this new law signed by President Museveni has been condemned by many groups across the world. In a tweet on Monday, the United Nations said the law, quote, requires urgent judicial review. Jody also mentioned legal action. Uh, what's happening and how is the U.S. responding? Yeah, there's been a really strong and, and, and sharp response from the United States. Um, we saw Secretary of State Antony Blinken come out on Monday and say that the State Department was now going to start considering visa restrictions against Ugandan officials. Um, he said he had also told the State Department to update its travel guidance to for U.S. citizens and businesses in Uganda. And we also saw President Biden come out and say that he would consider sanctions against some officials. Um, and it's important to remember this is pretty important because Uganda is um, reliant on the United States for aid, and it really uses a lot of military support from the United States as well. So it's one of those countries where um, you know criticism obviously goes a long way, but if the United States starts sanctioning and withholding it, it could actually have a pretty um, drastic impact on Uganda's military and economy. Is there any indication, Idris, that, that this pressure will make any impact? I mean, what we've just seen, as we mentioned, is Uganda sort of doubling down on these anti-gay laws rather than easing up in any way. Yeah, there's no indication that that will happen. You know, we started seeing um, similar laws, obviously, to a lesser extent in Uganda in 2014. And after that, the United States made similar statements and it actually withheld some aid. And, you know, that obviously didn't change uh, the mind of Ugandan um, politicians. If anything, um, they have now gone further. So I think the expectation is that no matter how harsh um, the sanctions or the visa restrictions or the um, aid being withheld is, this is something um, that President Museveni has decided. Um, he's going to stick by it. And, you know, it's, it, it's a country where, um, you know, anti-LGBTQ sentiments um, are not necessarily the norm, but, it, it, it you know, it's popular enough where um, uh, some of these laws, you know, even with restrictions by the West, will probably survive and, and continue. Moving on to Turkey, in a runoff election Sunday, voters re-elected President Erdogan to a third term. He addressed supporters outside the presidential palace in Ankara, as translated by the BBC. We are not the only winners. The winner is Turkey. The winner is our nation with all its segments. Our democracy is the winner. As you remember, we always said that no one will lose in our country when we win. 
No one has lost today. All 85 million citizens have won. As required by the responsibility entrusted to us by our nation, we are not offended by anyone's choice. It is now time to put aside all the disputes about the election period and unite, integrate around our national goals and national dreams. So, Jack, 52% of Turkish voters opted for another Erdogan term. Why? Well, first off, I think the caveat bears in mind this was not a level playing field. It was heavily tilted in favor of Erdogan, and Erdogan really made sure of the fact that the opposition wasn't going to be seen on TV. Voters didn't see much, if any, of Kamal Kılıçdaroğlu if you were sitting at home. Kılıçdaroğlu got 32 minutes of airtime on Turkish state networks in the, the last month of the campaign in April. Erdogan got 32 hours. The opposition had to weather the storm of of not being allowed to send text messages to voters. Uh, They had to weather the storm of uh, all these – this barrage of videos that that was basically sent linking them uh, to Kurdish separatists that have stirred up violence in in the the country's southeast for the past two decades. So – uh, there was really sort of a, a fear campaign that, that stuck to Turkish voters. Uh, and you have to keep in mind, of course, the context. This, of course, came just months after the 7.7 earthquake that killed 50,000 Turks. Uh, and so despite Erdogan's terrible economic track record, uh, despite the democratic backsliding that's worried the West, ultimately the Turkish electorate seemed to make the decision that they didn't want to change horses in the middle of the stream. Erdogan called for unity in his victory speech and then attacked the opposition for a variety of things, including supporting LGBTQ interests. Who do you think uh, in Turkey is most disappointed, Jack, by another Erdogan term? Well, I, I think you see sort of the West and folks sort of hoping that, that Turkey could could liberalize under a Klechterolu regime, uh, Klechterolu talking about moving more towards NATO, not having sort of this love-hate relationship that, that Erdogan has had with the alliance, of course, investing in Russian weapons, courting countries outside of the Western envelope. So certainly there's going to be some disappointment among Western capitals uh, and folks that are worried about uh, – rights groups and and those worried, of course, about the rhetoric about LGBT communities, uh, the rhetoric about minority communities, the the rhetoric against people immigrating to the country, and just this this wave of democratic backsliding we've seen in Turkey. Jody, we heard about human rights, LGBTQ rights. What else do Western leaders want from Erdogan? Well, one of the things they want, and I think their citizens want, is that the economy has been sort of a shambles. Um, They've had runaway inflation. The lira there has sunk to record lows. And uh, just in the past day, Erdogan appointed uh, Mehmet Simsek as his new treasury and finance minister, somebody who is pretty respected and people are hoping will bring back uh, kind of conventional economics to shore up some confidence. Uh, That would require Erdogan, who has uh, is kind of known for meddling in monetary policy and firing officials who he don't toe the line that he wants, uh, he will need to sort of let uh, his new uh, his new finance chief uh, do, do his work. Uh, but this is something that the world will be closely watching. And again, uh, the citizens there will be watching. Their inflation is, is among the, the highest uh, in the world. Former U.S. Ambassador to Turkey David Satterfield spoke to CNBC days before the runoff election. We welcome the dialogue that President Erdogan has with President Putin when the subject is stabilization, when the subject is the ability to access grain and other products uh, through the Black Sea uh, from Ukraine, that has been extremely useful and extremely important. And we do not see this as a pivot or an alignment of some kind with Russia. Jack, what role could Erdogan have in the future of the Russia-Ukraine war? 
a, a significant one. The, the problem for Erdogan, though, and I'm sorry to recycle uh, metaphors here on your air for your listeners, but he's kind of like a dog chasing a car, right? But he's running in two different directions. He's he's trying to court the NATO alliance, uh, but he's bought F, uh, S-300 air defenses from the Russians, which got him kicked out of the F-35 program, and he still wants F-16 fighter jets. Um, he's had some pushback with the Russians for the support of the Ukrainians. Uh, the Russians pushed back on the decision to send cluster munitions to Ukraine, which may have had an impact in Bakhmut. Uh, of course, the Turks see themselves as kind of the kingmaker in the, the Black Sea negotiations to continue shipping out grain. Uh, but Erdogan sort of getting through this election by the skin of his teeth with, with 52 percent could give the Russians some leverage here to, to crack down on him. Moving now to Sudan. Fighting broke out in mid-April between rival groups backed by two top generals. It erupted as they jockeyed for power amidst increasing international pressure to hand control of the country over to civilian leaders. And this week, the situation worsened when peace talks being brokered by the United States and Saudi Arabia fell apart. The warring groups each claimed that the other side broke a short-lived humanitarian ceasefire. Uh, Idris, there have been more than seven ceasefires since this fighting started. What happened this week at the negotiating table in Jeddah and with this renewed fighting? Yeah, seven ceasefires, and, and many of them seem to have broken down and, and, and not really worked out. And what we saw this week was the Sudanese army basically saying that the RSF, which is the paramilitary force, um, lacked a sort of commitment in implementing the terms of the agreement and were violating the ceasefire. And, and so those talks have broken down, and, it, and it's causing a lot of concern because, like you mentioned, we're now six weeks into this conflict Neither side seems to have the upper hand. The military has aircraft, so it's able to use air power. The RSF is sort of this lighter um, ground-based force, and what we're seeing is basically civilians being um, caught in the middle. We've you know seen hundreds of civilians being killed, more than 1.2 million people being displaced inside Sudan, and about 400,000 people being um, driven to other countries from um, Sudan. And, and, and so th there's a lot of concern, um, obviously, in the United States, but also in Saudi Arabia, which has really taken on sort of this um, leading role in trying to bring the two sides to some sort of agreement. And so now that we've seen um, these talks being suspended, it's really not clear where things are going to go from here. Um, I think the, the expectation is that fighting will once again start and maybe even accelerate and neither side seems to have the edge. And so what happens next is something I think um, diplomats in the United States and Saudi Arabia are, are trying to figure out. It was one of those um, situations that was you know, in real focus about four or five weeks ago when Western countries um, were rushing to, to evacuate their citizens. And now that that's sort of been taken care of, it's unfortunately seems to have gone into sort of this you know, cycle of um, conflict with, you know, interest, but no real major push to, to bring the two sides to, to end this. And I think that's what's um, causing a lot of concern. Yeah, as, as Idris mentioned, more than 350,000 people have fled Sudan since the fighting began six weeks ago. The UN says that number could reach a million by October if fighting continues. And this week, the AP reported that at least 60 children trapped by fighting have died at an orphanage in Sudan's capital, Khartoum, most of them from a lack of food and water. Jack, what other detail can you give us about the conditions on the ground in Sudan that are driving so many civilians to flee? 
It's it's getting worse, Sarah. And and as Idris mentioned, this is the problem with a lot of wars in Africa. They're they're fought amongst the population. And as the ceasefire has really dissipated, we've seen artillery fire racking the capital again. As the Sudanese military has basically been trying to take control of another airport in the south to to gain advantage over those rapid support forces. Uh, that paramilitary group uh, that seems to have started the fighting, although nobody's clear who fired the first shot. Uh, the violence is also spreading. We've seen 50 dead in Darfur, uh, and the fleeing continues, people leaving to, to Chad, uh, other neighboring countries. Chad, of course, one of the world's poorest countries. Uh, and with the United States not involved in the evacuation, it, it's kind of become this pay-to-play game. I, I was talking to evacuation groups last week, and they basically said, if you have the money, you can get out and you can flee. Uh, and if you don't, you're out of luck. Now, yesterday, the Biden administration announced sanctions against Sudanese companies and military leaders involved in the fighting. But last month, Senator Pete Ricketts, who's a Republican from Nebraska, was critical of the president. Help me understand, because it seems to me that once again, the Biden administration was caught flat footed by the events that were developing similar to Afghanistan. Uh, that's from a Senate Foreign Relations Committee hearing on May 10th. Jody, talk more, if you could, about what the Biden administration did in Sudan before the fighting broke out in April versus what it's doing now. Yeah, so what it's doing now is sanctions, which has you know, been the, the U.S. tool in these kind of situations. Um, before that, I think it was more trying to um, you know, be, a, be an honest broker in this and to, to examine the situation and to watch and see what was happening. And, of course, the criticism, mostly from Republicans, uh, is that they didn't uh, act soon enough and they didn't ring a bell soon enough about what was uh, likely to happen there. Uh, in terms of the sanctions, they're imposing economic sanctions and visa restrictions on both sides on the conflict. Um, as Jake Sullivan, uh, the national security advisor, said yesterday in a statement, on actors who are perpetuating the violence. Um, interestingly, uh, Anthony Blinken, the secretary of state, went further in, in a more detailed statement saying the U.S. was imposing visa restrictions on specific individuals in Sudan, including officials from both armed groups as well as leaders of the regime of the former Sudanese leader. Uh, and they also sanctioned several firms linked to the two sides. So they're trying to sanction sort of everybody involved in this. Now to North Korea and an unusually quick admission of failure. An attempt to put the country's first spy satellite into space failed on Wednesday. North Korea's official Korean Central News Agency said the rocket crashed off the Korean peninsula's western coast after it lost thrust following the separation of its first and second stages. Idris, what is Kim Jong-un's intent for this satellite? Yeah, so I think it's important to remember that, you know, North Korea has actually attempted um, five satellite launches since 1998, and they appear to have actually had two of them make it into orbit. So this was the latest in a, a series of attempts. And the theory years ago was that Kim jo uh, the North Korean leaders um, had been trying to launch satellites, test satellites, as a way to test weapon systems and sort of the um, launchers and the engines and the rockets. What we've seen now is that North Korea has a pretty advanced weapon system. They don't need to use these satellite launches as a guise to um, 
try and experiment weapon systems. And so it appears that North Korea has a, leg- has a real interest in basically having a satellite program. And there are a couple of reasons for this. The first reason is it's about prestige and um, the ability to say, look, we have a satellite program. We are not reliant on other countries. It's our sovereign right. Is something that they hold um, really highly um, in North Korea. And so that's, that's one of the sort of um, symbolically important reasons. The actual impact and, and, and sort of real world um, benefits for North Korea is their ability to basically be able to do intelligence and surveillance and reconnaissance better. Um, North Korea obviously is preoccupied by um, concerns about regime change. And by having satellites um, that are able to transmit um, to North Korea and to Pyongyang, they have a better ability to see what's going on from, you know, from space, um, be able to see further. And so when you put those two things together, I think a lot of analysts and officials believe that it's something that makes sense for North Korea. Um, You mentioned that this launch failed and North Korea was pretty quick to come out and say that, you know, it had failed. And I think one of the reasons for that is the expectation is that, you know, these launches, when they fail, they never actually really fail. And the expectation is that the scientists in North Korea must have figured out what went wrong. The expectation is that they will probably try to launch another satellite in the coming weeks or months because they seem to have figured out what went wrong this time, um, make those changes, make the improvements, and try again pretty soon. So what, they're not afraid to admit they failed because they think they have something else sort of teed up and ready to go? Yeah, and you know, when we talk to U.S. officials and we ask them, was this a failed, they're like, no North Korean launch is ever a fail because <laughs> their ability to learn is pretty extraordinary. Um, they don't have a massive budget, but whatever budgets they have goes into their weapons program. And it's one of those things where they don't see failure as a rocket falling in the water. They see it as a way to improve um, their systems. And yeah, the expectation is they will be launching another satellite in the coming weeks or months. Well, Jack, even if we don't call it an, an admission of failure, maybe an acknowledgement of something going slightly awry, uh, whatever we call it, why is this so rare for North Korea? Well, usually they they like to project strength to to show that that the hermit kingdom can can protect itself and defend uh, against all enemies. But here they kind of took a novel approach, and that was try to try and turn this into a propaganda win of sorts. You saw Kim Yo Jong, uh, Kim Jong Un's sister, come out with some pretty blazing quotes, and I hate to read off my phone in polite company, but she called it a, a gangster-like hypocrisy for, for the U.S. criticizing this satellite launch, uh, and even said the U.S. was letting loose a hackneyed gibberish prompted by its brigandish and abnormal thinking. Uh, quite a tongue twister, but uh, one way for the North Koreans to basically say, get off my lawn. Now, this could, ba- uh, this of course could backfire, this, this whole approach. You've seen the U.S. and South Korea engage in much closer military exercises. You've even seen sort of uh, South Korea and Japan try and put aside their historical differences and enter sort of a trilateral military alliance with the United States. So if that does indeed speed, speed up, it, it spells trouble for North Korea. You know, nobody but Jody and I would have known you were reading off your phone, Jack. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, well, you know, I I gotta be honest. (laughs) But I appreciate your point. This is the first launch since 2016. Residents in parts of South Korea and Japan were warned that they might need to evacuate because of it. Here's a woman in the South Korean capital, Seoul, speaking to France 24. I was worried about whether I need to withdraw money and whether I should prepare water and what I should do. So I turned on the television, and the alert message was real. 
I was really worried. And then around 7 a.m., I got another alert saying it's now okay. So I came out. A satellite launched by North Korea is a violation of U.N. Security Council resolutions that ban the country from conducting any launch based on ballistic technology. Jody, what are the U.S. and neighboring South Korea watching now? Yeah, so this is a, con- a concern, and uh, they made clear, the U.S. and the allies, that uh, about this breach of the U.N. Security Council resolutions. Uh, and analysts and, and some of the U.S. government uh, say the potential improvement uh, of these information-gathering capabilities uh, uh, is a concern, uh, particularly since they're t- regularly testing the ballistic missile technology, taking advantage of that deadlock in the U.N. Security Council. And uh, the United States has made this clear. We heard from Lloyd Austin uh, about this from Japan. He told reporters that North Korea's dangerous and destabilizing nuclear and and missile programs threaten peace and stability in the region. So this is something they're watching. He he did not have as colorful a language as uh, the North Korean uh, leader's sister, (laughs) but but clearly they're concerned, and they're concerned about the improvement, that at some point this will be successful, and that might happen soon. And, you know, Idris, the, the U.S. has a lot of troops in South Korea. What does this mean for them? Yeah, I think, you know, we've gone through years under President Trump where there was real concern and real planning within the military that um, the North Korean regime would try and attack U.S. troops. You know, we're talking tens and thousands of potential targets. And so a lot of money and a lot of effort has gone um, into hardening some of the U.S. bases there, um, having air defense systems going in there. Um, But, you know, we see with South Korea and Japan, this sort of like, you can never really relax if you're a U.S. service member. Every time there's a missile that goes up and, you know, it happens every couple of weeks, there's concern, you know, will this one be the one that lands in South Korea or in Japan? Um, You know, they're also hundreds of thousands of Americans in South Korea and Japan. And so there's a certain level of responsibility the American troops have there to defend them. And so it's, it's one of those things that every time North Korea does something, people in Washington are watching closely, um, but people in Seoul and Tokyo are watching even close, more closely um, to see if, if they may be the target. And it might not even be one of those things where North Korea is intentionally targeting, targeting U.S. troops a lot of their systems um, don't always work perfectly. So I think the question always is, you know, what if one of the missiles is launched and it goes off track and is heading towards a U.S. base? It, it really is one of those things that could lead to unintended consequences and uh, escalation really, really quickly. I want to end with some news a little closer to home. This week, the U.S. Justice Department prosecutors obtained an audio recording of former President Donald Trump after he left office in which he talks about holding on to a classified Pentagon document related to a potential attack on Iran. Jack, can you tell us what was in that recording and and the significance of it potentially? Yeah, I mean, this appears to be the former president bragging about the intelligence. So this could be very significant for prosecutors pursuing the the president. And you have to think about sort of the the timeline that this could come out. Um, You know, the, the prosecutor, Jack Smith, of course, looking at this consistently, uh, this could lead uh, to, to uh, you know, potential action, potential legal action right in the middle of the Republican primary cycle. So that would just totally throw the, the Republican nominating convention, uh, the entire primary cycle for, for a total loop uh, as President Trump seems to have some more challengers in, in Ron DeSantis and others in the field. 
Thank you to our panel for joining us today. Jody Schneider, political news director at Bloomberg TV and Radio, Idris Ali, national security correspondent at Reuters, and Jack Detch, national security reporter at Foreign Policy. We appreciate all your insights, and we hope you'll come back. And one last bit of space news for those interested in a future job as space ambassador. The State Department could be hiring. Earlier this week, the agency released a 25-page document unveiling its path to improve diplomatic relations in space. The release comes just one day after China successfully sent three astronauts to its space station. China also announced plans to send astronauts to the moon by 2030. NASA recently announced plans for its Artemis III mission to land on the moon by 2025. The State Department wants to promote a, quote, rules-based international order for outer space, end quote. Best of luck to those of you who apply. Mike Kidd is our sound designer and engineer. Chris Castano is our digital editor. Maya Garg is our senior managing producer. Aileen Humphreys is the editor and producer of 1A On Demand. Barb Anguiano produces our podcast. This program comes to you from WAMU, part of American University in Washington, distributed by NPR. I'm NPR's Sarah McCammon. Thanks for listening. Let's talk more soon. This is 1A. This message comes from NPR sponsor, Viore, a new perspective on performance apparel. Clothing designed with premium fabrics, built to move in, styled for life. For 20% off your first purchase, go to viore.com NPR. Support for NPR and the following message come from IXL Learning. IXL Learning uses advanced algorithms to give the right help to each kid, no matter the age or personality. Get an exclusive 20% off IXL membership when you sign up today at IXL.com NPR. What does it mean to be Black in America? In NPR's Black Stories, Black Truths, a collection of stories as varied, nuanced, and dynamic as the Black experience, you'll hear it means everything. Search NPR Black Stories, Black Truths wherever you get your podcasts.